So I'm going to back up to set, um, to the verses that we've read already. I'm going to start in verse 16. It's Matthew chapter 11, verse 16. It says, But whereunto shall I liken this generation? It is like unto children sitting in the markets, and calling unto their fellows, and saying, We have piped unto you, and you have not danced. We have mourned unto you, and you have not lamented. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He hath a devil. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous, and a winebibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of her children. Then began he to abrade the cities, wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which are exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which had been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight, all things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he, whoever the Son, will reveal him. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So I'll pray. Father, again, we just commit this time to you, Lord, and we thank you for your word and the recording of uh, the words and the life of Jesus. And Lord, we just pray that we would be able to grow closer to you through this time that we would learn of you and that our hearts would be turned to you. I just pray that it would be profitable. I pray that you would help me to be clear and uh, true and honest in all the things that I say this morning. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we have been talking about these verses over the past few weeks, we see that Jesus has just called out this crowd that's been following him largely from town to town and these crowds that have gathered in these cities that he's been preaching and teaching and performing these miracles in. And then the last comparison he made was to Sodom. <clears throat> and he made these comparisons to these other cities that God destroyed because of their wickedness. And he said they would have repented, those wicked cities that he destroyed, would have repented if Jesus had showed up there and done the things that he did in these cities of Israel. And these Jews, these 
chosen people of God refused to turn their hearts to Jesus. John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus is talking to a similar crowd, and he says, Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. He says, if you look in those scriptures, you'll see me. You'll see that I am fulfilling every prophecy that was ever given regarding the Messiah. And we've looked at some of those things. <clears throat> Last week I pointed to Romans where Paul is saying, you know, what advantage hath the Jew? And he says, much every way. And it's because God gave them the scriptures. God presented himself to the people of Israel. They have no excuse for rejecting Jesus. And interesting, this week, um, I was just looking up some verses in Daniel chapter 9. I wasn't thinking about a connection to what we're talking about here at the time. I was looking at some things on some prophecy and some end times things that I'd been listening to. And I see these verses, and it just fit exactly what I'm saying. And in Daniel chapter 9, we have this prophecy that we call Daniel's 70 weeks. And essentially, he's giving a timeline of events that lead up to the Messiah. And then the following seven-year tribulation that follows that. But he gives a starting point of a countdown of time. And so in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, he just says, it says, from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. So this gives us a starting point in time. It says from the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem. And so we have to ask, do we know when that took place? Did that happen? And we can look back in the Bible and we read the book of Ezra and we see in the book of Ezra, um, it starts out saying in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia. And then we have this story laid out where we have this decree to go and build the walls of Jerusalem. And so we have the fulfillment of that from Daniel taking place in the book of Ezra and it's even given us a timestamp of reference saying what the year is based on who was the king of Persia at the time and so we can go back in history and we can figure out when that is and you can bet that the, the Jews in Jesus day knew their history well um, that was a major part of their religious life was keeping track of their ancestry and keeping track of all of those events that took place um, regarding the nation of Israel and all the, the things that happened to them and when it happened. And so you can be quite sure that they knew when those things took place. So yeah, they could just simply turn to the scriptures and see that the Messiah was supposed to arrive right when Jesus was there. 
Now, I don't know if anybody was listening to that verse that I read. It said, the Messiah shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. And if you're trying to figure out the math on this, um, if, you're, if you're reading from a modern version, you'll, you don't have to do as much figuring as to what three score and two weeks is, but three score is 60, so three score and two is 62, and seven weeks, so we have 69 weeks. And if you're also reading from a modern version, it may not say weeks, it may just say sevens, which might make it simpler for you, but regardless of that, if you're looking here and you want to see, well, 69 weeks isn't very long, and there was a lot more time than that that took place from Ezra until Jesus. But we can also go back in the Bible, and we can see examples of the term week referring to a seven-year period, not just a seven-day period. And so if we go back to, to Genesis, um, we see when Jacob is living with Laban and he falls in love with Laban's daughter Rachel and he wants to get married. And so he makes an arrangement with Laban for Rachel and he says he has to serve him for seven years. And at the end of that seven years, they have a wedding ceremony and obviously they put a veil so he can't actually see her face and Laban tricked Jacob and he gave him Leah, the older daughter instead of Rachel, the one that he actually wanted to marry. And he made an excuse that, you know, you don't, you don't marry off the younger daughter before the older daughter. And it's, so then he arranges again another seven year period of, of work that he has to do to now marry Rachel, the one that he wanted in the first place. And in that text, I wrote it down somewhere, but I don't see it. It describes that second period as a week. You've got to fulfill her week. And so we just see in the Bible that uses this description of a week to, to describe a seven-year period. And, of course, the, the Jews, the scribes, the Pharisees, those people that were students of the Bible knew all of these details probably far better than you and I know these details. And so they had no reason to ever question when the Messiah should come. If they had just read and studied their Bible, they would have known that the Messiah should appear right around that time when Jesus appeared. Jesus said, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. The scriptures, and this is just one of many, many examples that we could turn to. This is just the one that I happen to, to look at during the week, and it's such a clear picture pointing to Jesus. They had no excuse for not believing who he was. When we get to verse 25 in Matthew 11, Jesus continues speaking out loud. And it says, 
at that time Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father. He starts praying. He's praying to God the Father. Oh, loud, so that the people can hear him. And he says some very important things. But I think it's important for us to first notice how Jesus prays, how Jesus begins to pray. Remember what he just finished saying. He's just rebuked all these people, these crowds of people that have been following him around, and he's telling them that these cities are going to go to hell because they've rejected him as the Messiah, because of all the things that he did to them. He said, Sodom would have repented, and yet you didn't. I don't think Jesus is in a particularly good mood at this moment. But look at his attitude when he turns to pray. He says, I thank thee, O Father. He starts, he, his first words are words of gratitude. Thank thee, O Father. And the second part of that, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, he's glorifying God. He's lifting his Father and glorifying him for who he is. And that matches exactly with what we call the Lord's Prayer when Jesus was talking to his disciples about how they should pray, how they should approach God. And Jesus does that in his actual prayer at this moment. He, he begins with gratitude and with uplifting God and praising and glorifying God. We have to remember, when we pray, when we're, we, we go through things in life, we get frustrated at what's going on around us. And we turn to God in prayer, sometimes in anger, at that moment, at that situation. What's our attitude towards God at that moment? Do we, do we change from our anger towards the situation and maybe the people that we're dealing with? And do we change our hearts, like what Jesus did here, and turn it to a heart of gratitude and, and praise towards God? Remember, he's angry and he's praying about this thing that he's angry about and that he's rebuking these people over. And he says, I thank thee, O Lord. What's he thanking him for? Well, he's found something to thank him for. He says, because... Thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. So he's thanked God. These people, these, these Jews, these scribes, these Pharisees, these religious people, these people that have no excuse to not recognize him for who he is, can't see him, can't see the truth. And he says, because thou hast hid these things, I'm thanking God now, that you've hid these things from these people. And he looks at this small crowd, this group of 12 disciples, this small gathering of people that have actually believed 
his message, that have actually trusted in him the way that they were meant to trust in him. And he says, and you've revealed it unto babes. He calls them babes, <laughs> babies, children, because of their simple willingness to accept the truth. It's so easy for people to get caught up in intellectual ideologies, intellectual philosophies, these complex explanations of scripture and of the world and of how things are and who God is and how God works. And it seems often the more complex and obscure the idea is, the harder it is to explain or to understand, the more we seem to want to grasp onto those things and believe that that's where the truth is, is in these difficult, complicated explanations, these things that are hard to grasp. And it leaves us often ignoring and denying the very simple truth that sits right in front of our faces. We need to be so careful that we're not grasping like what the scribes and Pharisees were doing onto these complex other religious ideas and completely ignorant of the truth, the simple truth that was right in front of their faces. In James chapter 1, verse 5, he says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally. When Jesus is talking about God revealing this to babes or to children, in a way he's, he's implying that um, these people who have believed him in some ways are lacking in worldly wisdom. They're not conceited and filled with pride, thinking that they have the answers, that they know the answers to these things, and they know better than this simple presentation that's been given to them. They're willing to forsake the stuff that they've previously been taught and believed when the truth that's presented contradicts those thoughts and ideas. And that's where we can turn to like what James is saying. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God and you give to all men liberally. James is basically saying that if we're willing to put aside our pride and our arrogance, admitting that we don't have all the answers, if we turn to God and ask for help, he's going to provide us with the wisdom that we need. He's going to help us, to guide us, to find those answers that we're seeking. Last week I quoted 1 Corinthians 11, verse 19, that says that there must be heresies among you. And I said that no matter where you go, no matter who you listen to, there's going to be some form of error in what is taught. And I believe that that is always going to be true until Jesus returns and corrects all of this wrong that is in our world. But I also see that in the scripture it doesn't have to be that way. 
I believe it's going to be that way, but I can see that it doesn't have to be that way. If we would be more like the Berean church, and we looked at that last week as well, said if, they, if, if we would rely entirely on God's wisdom, we wouldn't remain with these false doctrines and these false teachings that we hold on to. If we would rely entirely on God's wisdom, we would learn and believe the truth. But the problem is we're all far too much like those Jews that thought they were wise and prudent, as Jesus describes in Matthew 11. They thought they knew better than the one standing before them, presenting them with the actual truth. And they could not, and they would not, <clears throat> they would not see it. And so Jesus thanks God for those who are willing to humble themselves, those who are willing to accept the truth that God was revealing to them. In verse 27, he says, All things are delivered unto my Father. And no man knoweth the Son but the Father, but neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. At this point, Jesus ends his prayer and he gives an invitation. He says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This ties in very close with this previous thing that he's saying. It's connected very closely, even though we will often separate it in our minds. But it has to do with relying on God's wisdom, allowing the truth of the Bible to be held in our hearts rather than our own wisdom and the wisdom of men. And so he says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We talk about our sin and the burden that that sin can weigh on us. And I picture my mind, um, if you've read the book or seen any of the movies of Pilgrim's Progress, and you get this picture of this man with this gigantic, ugly burden that he's carrying around. And this is a picture of his sin. And it's weighing him down, it's uncomfortable, and it's ruining his life. And sometimes we can be like that, hanging on to our sin and the consequences and the burden that that puts on us, the responsibility that that puts on us, the knowledge that's in our head of that sin, and what that's doing to our relationship with God. Sometimes we worry about the state of the world, and we feel like we have some sort of responsibility to solve the problems of the world. 
we feel like it's up to us to sort through the details of all this information that bombards us day in and day out through the various news sources and now we need to determine what's right and what's true. We have to change the way we live to help solve some of these problems. Sometimes we feel responsible for the choices that others are making. If you're a parent and your children are growing up, when they leave home, as a parent you feel responsible for some of the choices that your kids make. You feel responsible for the mistakes that they make. Sometimes we feel responsible maybe for our parents and some of the things that are going on in their lives. We feel responsible for problems that our neighbors, our co-workers are having, the attitudes that they have towards us or other mistakes that they're making in life. These are burdens that we bear. And Jesus is offering to take those burdens. He's offering to give us rest. 1 Peter 5.7 says to cast your care upon him because he cares for you. And our job in that is to let go. <laughs> To stop thinking that it's up to me that the responsibility falls on me in all these things. We weren't made to be able to bear these kinds of burdens, this kind of responsibility for all these different things. God's never expected us to solve all of the world's problems or to control how others behave. And God knows that the burden of our own sin is too much for us to bear. And that's why Jesus offers to take these things from us. He offers a trade here. Verse 29 says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. He says, We can take our burdens, give them to him, and he'll give us his yoke. And it's easy. And you'll find rest to your souls. When I started thinking about this verse and this description of take my yoke upon you, there's a couple of implications of that yoke. And the first thing that I see is that it implies that we don't get rid of all responsibility. We still have something to do. When you put a yoke on an animal, the intention is that that animal is going to do some kind of work. You're going to give that animal some direction, and they're going to do your will. They're going to do the work that you tell them to do. And so when we give our birth to Jesus and we take on his yoke we're taking on a job we're given responsibility we have a job to do but there's a change the result of that job the result of the things that we do isn't our responsibility anymore 
If you put a yoke, think back to uh, um, Elisha is in the field when Elijah comes by to call him to into ministry, and he's in a field, and it says with twelve yoke of oxen, and he's plowing. Now, all these oxen that have this yoke on them, that are doing this work of plowing this field, when that crop doesn't grow the way Elisha thinks it should have grown, does he blame the cattle, the oxen that were pulling the plow? He can't, because it wasn't their responsibility to decide where to go and how to do the work. They simply took the direction that he gave them. They plowed exactly how he told them to plow. The results of that, the planning of that, all of the details fall back on the man giving the direction. As long as the animal in the yoke did what it was told, that's where its responsibility ended. And for us, when we take on Jesus' yoke, he gives us some responsibilities. And he outlines those responsibilities in the Bible. We're to do certain things. We're to take direction from him. But if we do that, if we obey God and follow his direction in our life, the results of the things that we do the results of the way that we parent our children, the way that we interact with our co-workers, the way the weight of our sin is gone. The results, the things that happen because of the work that we do when we're following God's direction, the responsibility doesn't fall on us anymore. The burden isn't on us anymore. That burden goes to God. And that's why you can find rest for your soul because I can now trust God with those things if I've followed his direction. If we don't follow his direction, that's a different story, isn't it? Then that responsibility does fall back on us. In John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus ends a statement with this phrase. It says, For without me, you can do nothing. Do you believe that? Without Jesus, we can't do anything? How far are you willing to take that? Do you believe that you can't get out of bed in the morning without Jesus? Do you believe that you can't make a cup of coffee without Jesus? You can't go to work without Jesus. You can't open and read without Jesus. Without, he says, without me you can do nothing. We have a problem is we think we're capable of things. We think 
that we can do things on our own. A few years ago when we started at the Bible Camp, our very first event that we ran was a, a teen retreat weekend um, for March break. And being our first event, there was a lot of prayer went into that, a lot of planning, a lot of preparation for all the details of how that weekend was going to go and all the things that we would do and the lessons that we would try to teach. And as people, as parents, registered their kids for that weekend, as, ki as parents were dropping off their kids for that weekend, they were sharing with us the problems that they were having with those kids. The drugs that some were getting into, the turning away from God or believing things that they shouldn't believe in and the attitudes that they were having. They had all these problems with these kids that they were dropping off into our care. And it was as if they're telling us these problems because they were hoping that we were going to solve these problems. And as we started that weekend, and we had this group of 20 or so teenagers in our care, that burden of that responsibility that was being placed on me was weighing me down, almost crippling me. I was almost unable to function because of the weight of the responsibility that I felt for what was about to take place over the next two days. And somewhere along the way, God revealed the truth of this verse that without me, you can do nothing. If this was all my wisdom, my planning, my own wisdom that was being used to prepare this weekend and to present the gospel and the Bible, biblical principles to these kids. If that was all me that did all of that, and if it was all falling on me, the responsibility was mine to make them understand these things and to change their ways, It was, way, it was a complete waste of time if that's where it fell. But the truth was that I had spent the time in prayer. I was trusting as I prepared this that God was directing me in the way we organized that weekend. God was directing me in the lessons that I had prepared for that weekend. I had put Jesus' yoke on me, preparing to do this job that he had given me. I had trusted him in all of those things. Yes, I had a job to do. I had a lot of preparation to do. But I did those things. And now the results of those things, the impact that that had in these kids' lives wasn't up to me. That responsibility wasn't mine anymore. It was God's responsibility. God gave me the job. I did what he asked me to do. And now the, the outcome of that, the burden didn't lay on me anymore. And when I realized that, wow, the weight that was lifted off my shoulders was unbelievable. 
And I was able to enjoy the weekend and just do what I had planned to do. And I left it in God's hands because that's the only way that anything was going to happen is if God took over and was in charge of the results of that weekend. And the same is true in every part of every one of our lives. I don't know how to explain this well. It is true, the statement that without Christ we can't do anything. Colossians says that without him nothing exists and by him everything consists. Without Jesus, every nanoparticle, every whatever the smallest particle of our universe is, every bit of that would completely disintegrate without Jesus holding it together. It is Jesus that allows us to think that we have some kind of power and some kind of wisdom in ourselves. But without him, I couldn't even get involved in sin. And that's a, a dangerous line of thought to go down. Are we judging God for allowing us to sin if, if we can't do anything without Christ? Do we now judge God because he allows us to fall into sin, he allows evil to take place. Do you realize that if God was like you and I, none of that would happen? We would, in our harshness, probably destroy the world if it disobeyed the rules that we gave it. But you know what God tells us to do? He tells us to be patient, to be long-suffering, to be gentle, to be kind. He tells us to do all these things. And he is all those things. And that's why this world is allowed to exist the way that it does. He allows us to take credit and to make mistakes. And he doesn't judge us by instantly disintegrating us. He allows it. He is gracious with us. God is all those characteristics that he asks us to be. And so the wickedness in the world is in part a testament to God's goodness. And no, he's not going to let it continue forever. This time is going to end, and he will correct it. He allows us to take credit for things. He allows us to do things outside of his direction. But we are supposed to take that yoke on us and take his direction and live a life that's directed by him so that the things that we say, the things that we do, 
no longer are fall on us as a burden, a responsibility. That responsibility falls on him. And we're not going to be judged based on the results of the work that we do. I hope I'm clear enough in that description. So we have a choice. <clears throat> we can give our burden to him and take his yoke upon us. Or we can face him in judgment, like these cities that he's described, for not believing in him and not repenting and turning from our sin. Let's pray. Lord, again, I thank you for your word and pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand how good you are, how kind and patient you are. Help us, Lord, to put our burdens on you and to trust you, but to be willing to follow your instruction the way that you've asked us to, to follow, Lord. Help us to understand these things, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Janemiah will come back and we'll sing one more hymn. must tell Jesus all of my trials. I cannot bear these burdens alone. In my distress, he kindly will help me. He ever loves and cares for his own. I must tell
Jesus, I must tell Jesus, Jesus can help me, Jesus alone. Thank you again, Lord, for this time together, and thank you for your word. And I just pray that you would be with each one as we go about our week. We pray that you would strengthen and comfort each one throughout the week. In Christ's name, amen.